John 5, 5 through 18. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was also calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Um, Praise the Lord that it was finished on the cross. Yeah, yeah, there's, um, it's not, it's not our works that makes us acceptable with God. It's Christ's works. It's Christ's righteousness that he clothes us with. And it's Christ's death that fully satisfies the penalty of God's law that is standing against you and me as sinners. And for once, one time at the, at the end of the ages, Christ has offered himself once for all time that he might put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's already been put away. And the call of the gospel is simply to receive it. Not to work for it, not to try to earn it, not to try and make yourself favorable enough so that Jesus will give it to you, but simply to believe in the promise of salvation in Jesus Christ and to receive it as an expression of the free grace of a sovereign God. Amen. That's the call of the gospel. And um, I, uh, I feel a little <clears throat> energized the first time in the pulpit in a few weeks. Um, I'm, I'm, ready to, I'm ready to launch out of my cage. I feel like I've been caged a little bit. I'm going to try to rein it in today. But I just want you all to, to know that Christ is doing a great work in this world right now. And you may not hear much about it. You may not hear about what's going on. We're inundated with darkness. We're, we're just constantly being washed in bad news about everything that's going on around us. But I'm telling you, at the fire conference this year, almost every single church was testifying to the reality that their membership has almost tripled or quadrupled in the last two years. Right? And it's not only people transferring from other churches. We're talking about a, a great segment of that that number of people being new converts that the Lord is saving and bringing to himself because they're seeing the lunacy of the world all around them and coming to the point of understanding that there's got to be some better answer than what's being offered by the world. And praise God that the Christians and the church is there to say, yes, there is a better answer. It's the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to submit to him. 
People will only hear that message, though, if we're proclaiming it. So there's our challenge. That's what we're called to do in this day, to pray and to preach. We pray for the Spirit of God to come. We preach the gospel of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ. And we call for sinners to respond to it appropriately. Let's be faithful in doing that. There is no darkness that the gospel cannot conquer. We see that in church history. So let's not, let's not be disheartened or discouraged. Jesus said, Luke 18, we ought to pray at all times and not lose heart. <laughs> so we don't need to lose heart. We don't need to be discouraged by the darkness. We need to be bold in our Lord. We need to stand in his strength. And we need to confront it with the truth of the gospel. So let's pray together and ask the Lord to strengthen us to that end through his word this morning. Father, we do, we do rejoice and we thank you that <laughs> death has no hold on your people because death has no hold on your son, Father. Death was powerless to keep him. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. And you, wrote, you raised him from the dead to prove the reality of that glorious truth. So Lord, I thank you that as as we, those who have been called by your grace, those who have responded in faith and in clinging to the hope that is ours in Christ Jesus, that for us, death no longer has a hold on us. Death is not something that we should fear, but it becomes a doorway through which we enter into life itself in your presence. Lord, I thank you for the grace and the mercy that's ours through Christ Jesus. Father, I thank you that you have by your goodwill ordained for the Lord Jesus Christ to be our Savior. I pray that if there are any in this room who have not received Christ as the only Savior, who have not latched onto Him by faith, God, would you please open their eyes to see the truth today. Please open their ears to hear the truth of the Gospel today. Please give them a new heart to respond to the appeal that comes to us through your word to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. Lord, we do think of uh, Diane, uh, Lene's mom, and I'm so thankful, Lord, that even on her deathbed, she could testify of her hope being soundly in you. That you will see her safely through the valley of death and, and the valley of the shadow of death, and you will bring her into your eternal kingdom. She's confident of that, Lord. But we do pray as a, as a church body that you would make that happen soon. Uh, Lord, she's in so much pain. And uh, please be merciful, Lord, and send forth your angels to bring her home to your presence, even now, Lord. May it be soon, and until it happens, may she continue to be strengthened by your Spirit to rest and to wait upon you. Lord, we're confronted by so many things in life and in this world today. I pray that you would strengthen us from your Word, by your Holy Spirit, so that we would face those challenges well, and we would be faithful to your name. Lord, help us as we, as we look at this issue of the Sabbath today. Give us clear thinking, Lord. Please don't let any preconceived notions regarding the Sabbath or 
any past teaching that may not have been overly helpful, please don't let those override what your word has to teach us on this topic. Lord, we pray for your grace to be with us, for your spirit to be among us, for there to be a sweet harmony and unity among each other in Christ. And we ask for Jesus' name to be lifted high. Father, we approach you in his name, and we ask for these things. Amen. All right, so a number of weeks ago when we began looking at John chapter 5, I, I said that there were some very difficult matters that are presented to us in this passage that we're going to have to deal with. Uh, one of those uh, issues was relating to the textual variant that's, that's in the end of verse 3 and verse 4. You guys remember discussing that, right? Some of you, maybe you wish we hadn't, but, but we have to deal with these kinds of issues because the world is increasingly forcing us to address those matters, and we need to be prepared to do it. Um, another one of those difficult issues uh, that we have to look at as we walk through this passage is the issue of the Sabbath. For some of us, that issue is hard to understand. For others of us, it seems very simple and straightforward. Um, I don't know, actually, I, I, how many of you have heard, actually sat personally under a sermon that was discussing the topic of the Sabbath? Really? That's far more than I thought. Because uh, I've never sat under a sermon that I can recall, anyway, where someone was... Uh, specifically addressing the topic of the, the Sabbath day. Um, I think there's a reason for that. This is not an easy topic to address from the pulpit. Um, it's not easy to cover all the bases in one sermon. We're going to see, we're not actually going to do that uh, in this sermon. We're going to have to come back next week to talk about it more. Um, but what makes it difficult for many of us to understand and process the topic of the Sabbath really has to do with bad teaching that we've been exposed to in the past. Right? Either, either teaching that is legalistic or, on the flip side, teaching that utterly ignores the reality that the Sabbath day is part of the moral law of God that he expects to be continued Continued, uh, continually observed by his church until the final Sabbath comes, which is the day of glory, when we finally enter into the fullness of the rest that Christ has earned for us, that he has accomplished. Either on, on either side, either extreme, we can go wrong. And that can cause us to have a, a, a misshapen and a warped view of what the Sabbath is really all about. And what I want to do today is, is try, <coughs> try to be helpful in discussing this issue as a body of believers who are united together in our faith in Christ Jesus. Now, I'm not going to answer all of your questions today. If you, if you do have some questions that are lingering and really bothering you, please email them to me, and I'll make sure that I address them. Um, I don't want to dodge anything. I'm not trying to pull a fast one on you. I want, I want to speak forth the truth. 
And if you have questions regarding what the truth is on this topic, or maybe a disagreement that you want me to address or speak about, please email it to me. I'm more than happy to receive that from you, okay? And at the end of the day, as important as I think this issue is, if you and I come away disagreeing on this issue, we are not separated and divided in Christ. We're still united in his name, though we don't see things eye to eye, okay? Is everybody tracking with me so far? Are we on the same page starting off? It'd be really bad if we weren't. So, um, All right, so the main issue that confronts us in our passage today, or at least one of these main issues that we're going to look at today, though, is the issue of the Sabbath. And you can see that emphasized right at the, uh, right at the end of uh, verse 9, where after Jesus commands this man to stand up, to take up his bed, and to walk. It says that the man was immediately healed. He took up his bed. He began to walk. And then John makes this note at the end of that verse, by the way, that day was the Sabbath. Now, the fact that this healing takes place on the Sabbath, the fact that that is the focus and the focal point of at least a part of this passage is revealed in the fact that the Sabbath is mentioned four times in these verses. So from verse 9 to verse 17, or verse 16, I believe, no, 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 18, there, the Sabbath is brought up four different times. And I think that's signaling to us that this is something that John wants us to focus on. He wants us to, to get something in relation to the Sabbath and what Jesus is doing on that day. So what we find here is that just as in the other gospel accounts, the first issue that brings Jesus into sharp conflict with the Jewish leadership of his day is the issue of the Sabbath. You find that in Matthew, you find that in Mark, you find that in Luke, and you find that in John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you find it, uh, the issue of the Sabbath being addressed in Galilee. But here in the Gospel of John, we see that even in Jerusalem, when Jesus is worshiping at the feast, the issue of the Sabbath was a point of contention between the Jewish leadership and Jesus. They had differences between them as to how to understand the Sabbath and how to keep the Sabbath. Now the Jews' issue with Jesus' understanding of the Sabbath, or at least his treatment of the Sabbath, their issue with that is made clear in this text. So just follow with me. We're going to bounce across some of these verses. We see in verse 16 that the Jews were persecuting Jesus and even seeking to kill him. That needs to be in the text. Even seeking to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So here the Jews are persecuting Jesus. They're seeking to kill Jesus. And why are they seeking to do that? Because of some things that he had done on the Sabbath. Now what were those things? Well, obviously, we're talking about Jesus' act of healing this man on the Sabbath. The Jewish leadership viewed that as a breach of the Sabbath command, that he had healed this man, therefore he had worked on the Sabbath, and therefore he broke the Sabbath. Okay, so that's one thing. But the other part that they see as, being, as breaking the Sabbath is Jesus' command to the man to take up his mat and start to walk. So because he had done these things, they understood Jesus to have broken the Sabbath, and therefore they were persecuting him and viewed him as worthy of death. Verse 10, it tells us that the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem believed it to be unlawful for this man to carry his mat on the Sabbath, carry his bed. And as is plain in verse 11, 
Since it was Jesus who healed and commanded the man to do these things on the Sabbath, Jesus was viewed as the instigator, uh, the, the, the culprit, the, main, the one who was mainly responsible for this sin. And therefore, verse 18, they were seeking to kill him because, it's, as it says there, in their minds, he was breaking the Sabbath. Now, if Jesus was, in fact, guilty of breaking the Sabbath then the Jews would have had every right to put him to death. In fact, that's exactly what God's law demanded to happen if Jesus broke the Sabbath. For example, in Exodus 31, verse 14, it says, God commands his people, you shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And putting the person who profanes the Sabbath to death was a sign that that person had been cut off from among the people of God. And by extension, had been cut off from God himself. So if a person broke the Sabbath, Exodus 31, 14, God demands that person to be put to death. Uh, And you see that actually play out in Numbers chapter 15, verses 32 through 36 where the Jewish uh, people or the Israelite people uh, found a man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And they arrested that man, they confined him, and then they sought the Lord to find out what they needed to do in relation to this man. And the word of the Lord that came back to them through Moses was, put him to death. And so the people of Israel stoned the man to death because of his breach of the Sabbath. So not only by law, but also by precedent, The Jewish people, in God's word, had uh, authority to put someone to death if that person was breaking the Sabbath. So, if Jesus truly had broken the Sabbath himself and was guilty of commanding others to do the same, then the Jews would have been obligated by God's law to put Jesus to death. Do you understand? You follow me there? Okay. Now... Before we look at Jesus' response to their accusation, we should first of all ask and answer a very important question. Was Jesus guilty of breaking the Sabbath? Who says yes? One hand. Who says no? Okay, praise God. Who says, I don't know? A few of you. At least a few of you who are honest. Willing to be exposed before everybody. When Jesus healed this man, and when he commanded this man to pick up his bed and to walk around with it on the Sabbath day, was Jesus, in fact, breaking the Sabbath? You need to be careful about how you answer that question. Some do say, and this is actually pretty common, I'm surprised that no one, not more people raise their hands to affirm this, but some people do say that in the New Testament, Jesus clearly was breaking God's law concerning the Sabbath. And they use various reasons to argue for that. So obviously Jesus performed healings on the Sabbath, and clearly healing is a work. Jesus is doing a work on the Sabbath. He's breaking the Old Testament law concerning the Sabbath. 
Or he was letting his disciples pick grain in the fields as they were walking. Clearly, they're letting, Jesus is letting his disciples do a form of harvesting there. He's breaking the Sabbath, or at least allowing it to be broken. He uh, is commanding this man to carry a burden. He's carrying his bed, which is explicitly commanded against in Jeremiah 17, 21, and 22. So clearly Jesus is encouraging this man to break the Sabbath. Some say because of all this, Jesus was setting aside the Old Testament law concerning the Sabbath in order to bring in a new understanding of how to follow the Sabbath or in order to bring in uh, a point in the new covenant where the Sabbath is, is removed altogether. Now, I hope everyone here right off the bat understands what's wrong with that position and why that is not a possibility in relation to Jesus Christ. If Jesus was truly guilty of breaking the law of God concerning the Sabbath and then was guilty about, of teaching others to break the Sabbath, what would that make him? That would make him a sinner. That would make him a lawbreaker, right? Rather than fulfilling all righteousness, he would be unrighteous in this respect. Rather than being our spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, before God's law, Jesus would have been blemished and would have had his own sin to deal with. So if Jesus was guilty of breaking the law of God concerning the Sabbath, then he is unworthy of being our Savior and our hope in him is vain. Right? In fact, God the Father who expects his Sabbath day to be kept and delighted in, would be guilty either of lying or unrighteousness himself when he declares over his Sabbath-breaking son, you are my son in whom I am well pleased. In light of this, we must say no, Jesus was not guilty of breaking the Sabbath, nor was this man guilty of breaking the Sabbath by obeying Christ's command. Now, in order to grasp that, though, in order to understand why that is the case, we need to focus on two things, and we need to make sure that we understand these two things very well. We're going to look at one of them today, uh, hopefully all of it, and we're going to look at the next one, the second one next week. So the first thing we need to understand in order to grasp how it is that Jesus is not breaking the Sabbath and how it is that this man is not breaking the Sabbath, is we need to understand what God teaches about the Sabbath in the Old Covenant. Or just more generally, what does God teach us about the Sabbath? And then secondly, we'll look at next week, how did the religious leaders interpret what God had to teach about the Sabbath. Or we could say, how did they misinterpret what God taught us and teaches us about the Sabbath? So the first thing, this is what we're going to look at today, what God teaches us about the Sabbath. And there are three elements that we need to focus on as we answer this question. God, what do you have to say to us about the Sabbath? And first of all, a proper understanding of the Sabbath must begin with what God teaches in Genesis chapter 2. 
A proper understanding of the Sabbath must begin with what God teaches us in Genesis chapter 2. Here we find that Sabbath observance is not something that began with Israel. And Sabbath observance is not something that was instituted only under the law of God that was given through Moses. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that the Sabbath was instituted and practiced by God himself at the beginning of creation. And that makes Sabbath observance a creation ordinance. Okay, I'm going to unpack what that means in a second. So what do we find here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 2? We find that at the end of God's work of creating the world and the cosmos and bringing everything to order according to his plan and purpose, at the very end, the climax of it all, after creating man in his image and, and giving man his commission to go forth and rule and take dominion over the earth for the glory of God, at the end of that, it says in verse 2, on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and God rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Literally, the last part of that says, and God Sabbathed on the seventh day. He Sabbathed. So God himself is the first one to observe a Sabbath in relation to his creation. Now notice verse 3. Not only did God observe the Sabbath, but what else did God do? It says there that God blessed the seventh day, and then he sanctified it. He blessed it, and he sanctified it. Why? Well, because God himself had rested on the seventh day. And therefore, that day was holy. And from that point forward, God forever attached a blessing to the Sabbath day. And sanctified it as a day that is holy. Now you got to notice that. This is really significant. In verse 2, God observed the seventh day as a, as a day of rest. He Sabbathed on the seventh day. But in verse 3, God blesses and sanctifies the seventh day. Now these are two different actions. On... On the first, uh, in, in the first statement in verse 2, God is the one observing the Sabbath. In the second statement in verse 3, God is the one blessing and sanctifying the Sabbath. So these are not the same thing happening here. One is God observing it. The other is God blessing it. It's really important for you to understand that. If you're going to understand the nature of the Sabbath day principle that God instituted at the beginning of creation. Some people say God did not command that a Sabbath be observed by Adam here at the beginning in Genesis chapter 2. I say, well, what is he doing then in verse 3? For whom is he blessing the day? For whom is he sanctifying it? Why does he have to pronounce a blessing on that day? Why does he have to declare that he sanctified that day if it's only a day that was meant for him to observe? Well, I think the obvious answer to those questions is that God set apart that day as holy and he connected his blessing to that day so that it would perpetually be observed in his creation by his image bearers. Amen. Amen, Ejir. So here, what we find in Genesis 2 is that God sets before mankind a pattern. 
And he expects mankind to follow that pattern. Six days of work, the seventh day, a day of rest. And Adam, as the image bearer of God, well, let me ask it, let me ask you a question before I make this statement. If mankind is made as God's image bearer, okay, what does it mean to be God's image bearer? It means that you are reflecting the nature of God in all that you do, in all that you think, in all that you say. You are, you are exhibiting the holy character and nature of God in all that you are, right? That's what it means to be his image bearer. If mankind truly is the image bearer of God, then in relation to creation, is it right to imitate what God does in his creation? Or if God rests on the seventh day, would God expect his image bearers to rest along with him? Yes, he would. And he did. Now here, what we have set before Adam and Eve is a pattern. God has spent six days, and I do, by the way, believe that those are six literal 24-hour days. You cannot get around that in the Hebrew of this passage. The only, the only way that that's undermined <laughs> is when you are trying to bring scientific claims from outside of the Bible and make them congeal or, or make sense together with what is plainly stated in the Bible, Okay? I just want to throw that out there as a parenthesis. I am, I am a young earth. I am a, a literal six-day, 24-hour period creationist, if you, if you will. Amen. That aside. Yeah, amen. So that aside, God sets the pattern. He works for six days, and then he rests on the seventh. And Adam, as his image bearer, was then entrusted with the responsibility of replicating God's activities in relation to his creation all over the face of the earth. So Adam was given a commission. I don't know if you ever realized this, but when God finished creating the earth, he did not complete the work that he wanted done on the earth. He planted a garden, and that garden was called what? Eden. And in that garden, God... God deposited the blueprint, uh, the, the design of what he wanted to happen all over the face of the earth, but that garden was not all over the face of the earth when God finished doing his work. He entrusted that task to Adam and Eve. And we see that in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God blessed mankind that had now been made in his image. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the, over the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the animals of the field. Rule over these things. Take dominion. What did that mean? Well, that meant taking what God had shown them he wanted done in the Garden of Eden and replicating that all over the face of the earth so that once that work was done, the glory of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. It's the very same task that Jesus is going to fulfill, right? In his process of doing that work, Adam and Eve... In fulfilling that commission, that commandment that God gave them in the very beginning, in the process of doing that, they had this pattern given to them by God. You are to work for six days, and on the seventh day, you are to rest with me. 
I don't mean to belabor that, but the first thing that we need to understand about the Sabbath day is that it is a creation ordinance, meaning that as a principle, it was established by God at the beginning in creation. So, just like marriage being between one biological genetic male and one biological genetic female. You cannot have marriage apart from that. The joining together of a genetic male and genetic female, right? That's a creation ordinance. Is that binding on us today? Yes, it is. Or just like our calling to work for the glory of God. That commission to work was given in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. Is God's expectation upon mankind to be workers for His glory still binding on us? Yes, it is, because it's a creation ordinance. So also it is with the Sabbath. It was given to man prior to the fall, and it's a means by which mankind shows unity and fellowship with the God of creation. Is that still binding on mankind? Or was that destroyed by the fall? Well, if marriage, a creation institution, still remains, and work as a creation institution still remains, why would the Sabbath observance as a creation ordinance not remain? Now, listen, I don't want to be too controversial here. It's kind of tongue-in-cheek on that. I don't mind being controversial. What all this means is that as a creation ordinance, the Sabbath command did not begin under the Mosaic Old Covenant when God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. That's not when Sabbath observance began. And that means Sabbath observance did not pass away once the Old Covenant was abolished and replaced by the New. So if the Sabbath observance was not instituted under the old covenant, then the, sap, then the need to observe the Sabbath was not removed once the old covenant was removed. Because it predates the old covenant, right? Does that make sense? You guys following me there? Just like with marriage and work, so also the Sabbath, the Sabbath day as a creation ordinance remains in effect for mankind so long as creation remains. But there's a really important principle that you and I need to keep in mind as those who live under the new covenant. There's a difference between the substance of a command and the form that obedience to that command might take. You know you were in a seminary class this morning, did you? There's a difference between the substance of a command and the form that obeying that command might take. The substance of the command of the Sabbath is to observe a day of rest unto the Lord. The form in which that command is to be obeyed might look different in different periods of human history. The substance remains, the form might change. Here's an example. Under the Old Covenant, what was the Sabbath day that was to be observed? Saturday. But wait a second, if I'm saying the Sabbath day still remains in effect for Christians today, we don't worship on the seventh day, so how can you say the Sabbath day is still in effect? 
because under the new covenant, there has been a shift of the form in which the substance of the command is observed. Under the old covenant, the form was determined by the old creation. Old creation. God worked six days. He rested on the seventh. That's the pattern to be followed until a new creation is introduced. When Jesus Christ comes, when does He enter into His rest? When does Jesus observe His rest from His work? Is it on the seventh day? Or is it on the first day? When was Jesus raised from the dead? First day. So there we have the beginning of this new creation in Christ, and that mandates a new outward form in which the Sabbath command is to be observed. Why are we meeting together on the Lord's Day? Why do you and I meet together to worship on Sunday rather than Saturday? Or Friday night? Or, or maybe Thursday night. Why, don't, what, what, why is it that we can't make congregational worship mandatory on like a Monday night? Because of the resurrection of Christ. From the very beginning, the apostles and all the Christians of the first era, they understood the cataclysmic reality that had been introduced in the resurrection of Christ. Everything has changed. The new creation has now been introduced into the old. And though it's not yet in its fullness here present now, there's still realities that have broken in upon us in this present age. There's this overlap of the old age and the new age that's happening right now. And every single Christian is an expression of that reality. Remember what it says in 2 Corinthians 5.17? If anyone is in Christ, he's what? He's a new creature. The old has passed away, the new has come. What's the new? What defines what it means to be a new creature? Well, the new creation that Jesus Christ is bringing about in himself. So under the old covenant, it was identifying with God as the creator of the old creation. Under the new covenant, Christians observe the Lord's Day Sabbath in identification with Christ as the creator of the new creation. I'm sure there are tons of questions in relation to that, but uh, email me and, and we'll talk about it. I, I'll challenge you though, and, and I need to move on, but I'll challenge you. In all of Christ's teachings, where do you ever find Jesus abrogating the command of the Sabbath? Unhinging it, or as Andy Stanley would say, unhitching it. Unhitching Christians from the Old Testament, unhitching Christians from the Sabbath. You, you will never find Jesus saying that the Sabbath is no longer to be observed. What you do find Jesus doing is explaining how the Old Sabbath ought to be observed and how it shouldn't be observed. So, all right. So that's number one. The first thing we need to understand about the Sabbath day is that it is a creation ordinance and as a creation ordinance, it is binding upon all human beings. Therefore, when Jesus heals on the Sabbath, and when he commands this man to take up his bed and walk on the Sabbath, Jesus is not violating the command to obey the substance of the Sabbath. That leads to a second point that's really 
significant for us and important for us to understand, which is God's purpose for the Sabbath. If we're going to understand how Jesus didn't break the Sabbath and how Jesus' command to this man was not in violation of the Sabbath, then we have to understand God's purpose for the Sabbath. What is the purpose of the Sabbath day? If I ask you guys just as a group, what would you say? What is the purpose of the Sabbath day? Somebody say it. Rest? And worship. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Most people automatically and off the bat, when, they, when they're asked a question about the Sabbath, what does the Sabbath mean? What is it about? The very first thing that comes to most people's minds is the idea of rest, and, and appropriately so, right? The Hebrew word Shabbat does mean rest. That's literally what it means, right? And we find in the commandments under the Old Covenant that when the Lord was commanding his people to observe the Sabbath day and to keep it holy, it was explicitly a command for them to rest. So you see that, for example, in Deuteronomy 5, verse 14, where after commanding his people to observe the Sabbath, he says at the end that even their male and female servants were to be allowed to observe the Sabbath so that they may rest as well as you. So the, the idea of rest is clearly in, uh, included in what the Sabbath is calling us to do, what God's calling us to do on the Sabbath. However, as important as the principle of rest is on the Sabbath, that rest has a greater purpose. And Corbin highlighted what that purpose is. And I think you really have to understand this in order to understand the true purpose of the Sabbath. The rest that God demanded to be observed on the Sabbath day was a resting from something and a resting to something. It's just like sanctification, right? When, when the Lord calls us to sanctification, it is being sanctified from something and being sanctified to something. You are being separated from your sin and you are being drawn further and further in in fellowship with Christ. Sanctified from, sanctified to. It's the same way with the Sabbath rest. It's a resting from something in order to rest to something, right? So when God gave this principle of Sabbath to his people, he was commanding them to observe a rest from their normal labors and their normal activities that go on throughout all the week. Rest from your normal labors and your normal activities so that you will be set free from those distractions and encumbrances and be able to focus exclusively on the worship of God. That's what the Sabbath is all about. Being set free from the distractions and the encumbrances of normal life in this world so that for one day you can focus exclusively on worshiping the Lord. Now that doesn't mean that they weren't worshiping God and everything that they were to do throughout the rest of the week. The other six days, were, they were clearly to worship God. That's why there are laws that were governing what they were supposed to do on those days, right? How they were supposed to go about working, how they were to order their families. All of that was an expression of worship to God. So I'm not saying that they weren't worshiping God the other six days of the week. But what I am saying is that God demanded from them that for one day in that week they would withdraw from the world. 
They would withdraw from all of its noise and all of its busyness and come away from it all to focus exclusively on drawing near to God and enjoying undistracted communion with Him. That's the purpose of the Sabbath. It's not just stop working and sit there and do nothing. It's stop working in all of these areas that will distract you from worshiping and enjoying communion with me. That's the Lord's substance, the substance of the Lord's command. So think about that. Think about what a glorious reality that is. You Christians in this room will know exactly what I'm talking about when I describe this. So rather than the, what's normal on the other six days of the week, on the Sabbath day, there would be no need to break off from morning prayers in a rush to get to work. Some of you know exactly how, with me how grieving that is. When you're praying to the Lord and you're fellowshipping with Him in prayer and all of a sudden you realize, man, i got to go. Lord, I love you. Amen. Be with me today. And you're up and you're in a hurry and you're in a rush and you're going. And what happens as a result of that? Sometimes... You can't even remember the things you were praying about 10 minutes ago. Sometimes that sense of fellowship with God in prayer is just removed. Almost entirely, it would seem. That's not true in reality, but it seems that way to us in our experience at times. Or how about this? Rather than what is normal on the other six days of the week, on the Sabbath day... There's no need to have your mind distracted from absorbing the instruction of God's Word by the pressures of everything else that you've got to get done that day. How many of you with me, when you sit down in the morning to read the Word of God, are inundated in your mind with all the, all the duties and all the responsibilities that are upon you, all the emails that you've got to answer that you haven't answered in weeks? All the phone calls that you got to respond to, the text messages that have come, the duties that you have in relation to your family, taking care of that gutter on the house, washing the car, changing the oil, uh, cleaning your desk. Very often when, when I'm sitting down reading the scriptures, it can be like a dart just being thrown at me every five seconds of some new thing that I just thought of that i got to take care of today. Guess what? On the Sabbath day, you're starting your day in the Word with the recognition that none of that is being allowed to intrude into your mind and in that time when you're sitting before the Lord in His Word. It seems like a blessing to me. That for one day in our weeks, there would only be one thing on the agenda. And that is focusing our hearts and our minds on God and cultivating a deeper communion with Him. We aim for that throughout the rest of the week, but we have responsibilities that we have to fulfill. And those responsibilities can be distracting. But on this day of the week, we're set free from those responsibilities and are set free to focus exclusively on the Lord. Now, what's shocking for many, what was surprising to me is that that was even the purpose of the Sabbath day under the law of God. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 14, and I believe, where's Rick? Is Rick here? Nope. He must be on vacation. I believe the ESV gets it right here. 
I wanted to affirm Rick from last week. Deuteronomy 5.14, at the very beginning, uh, the New King James and the NASB would say, but, on, uh, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God, a Sabbath that belongs to him. I don't think that's right. In the Hebrew, it very clearly designates that the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It's a Sabbath that's being observed unto him. That is, it's a Sabbath that's being observed for his sake. Not merely as a day that belongs to him, but as a day that is consecrated to him. You see that same reality in Exodus 31, 15. Uh, and I won't, I won't read that, but just the point is, is that the Sabbath day was a day that was sanctified unto the Lord. It was separated from the other six days, and it was consecrated for His sake, that it might be observed in fellowship with Him and unto His glory. And to what end? What's the end of observing the Sabbath? What's the goal? To slavishly and boorishly sit around doing nothing and just disconnecting your mind and disengaging from everything else in the world and just sitting there watching TV or enjoying the football game or, or doing something like, is that what we're called to do on the Sabbath? Well, I'm not working. I'm just sitting on my couch. Is that what the Sabbath is for? No, the end of enjoying and de- the end of observing the Sabbath is enjoying and delighting in the Lord. You see that in Isaiah 58, verses 13 through 14. That this is what the Lord holds out before his people as the motivation for keeping the Sabbath. Why should they keep the Sabbath? Well, he says to them, if rather on the Sabbath you turn away your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day, And you call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable. You see there, the Lord's day, the holy day of the Lord, Lord's day. New Testament connection. Anyway. Holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then what is the promise that the Lord holds out to them as the blessing? What does God say? If you will do these things, if you will stop pursuing your own pleasures, stop speaking your own words, stop doing your own things on my holy day, what is the blessing that he promises? Look at verse 14. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord. Amen. Amen. If you cease doing the things of the world on my holy day, and you use my holy day for what is intended for, then you will find the blessing of delighting yourself in the Lord. Very often we think of like Sabbath observance, somebody saying, hey, you need to keep the Sabbath. And we think of this legalistic, ritualistic law, this binding us and keeping us from having joy and pleasure. What do you mean? You mean I can't play golf on Sunday? You mean I can't watch TV on Sunday? You mean I can't read that book or do that activity on Sunday? Man, that sounds horrible. That sounds like a bore. I don't want to just sit around at the house doing nothing. I got to get the grass cut, man. If that's the only thing that you can think of when you hear the command to keep the Sabbath, then you have missed the point. What is the promise that God holds out for honoring the Lord on the Sabbath day? It's greater delight in Him. You know, sometimes 
maybe we should evaluate ourselves in light of statements like this. Do I truly enjoy the Lord on his day? Seriously, do I, do I really have the pleasures of God welling up in my soul? Am I delighting in him? Do I, am, I, am I happy in the Lord? You know, as a Christian, you should be happy in the Lord. And I rebuke myself with that comment. No matter what's going on, you should be happy in the Lord. You should be joyful in him. What, what might be the culprit? If we're walking through a season where we have to say, I'm not really delighting in the Lord right now. On, the Lord, on Sundays, when I gather together with the people of Christ, I'm not really delighting in the fellowship of the Lord as it manifests among his people. I'm just not. In fact, I, I kind of just can't wait to get out of here so I can go play baseball or whatever. What might be the issue if that's our attitude? And let me tell you, that is, our, that is all of our attitudes more often than we would want to admit. Maybe the culprit is we're not truly keeping the Lord's day the way that he intends for us to keep it. Maybe. I'm not your judge, and I'm not condemning you and saying that is the case, but maybe. Could it possibly be that if this promise of the Lord is not manifesting in our lives, could it possibly be that maybe we're not observing His Sabbath the way He's commanded us to? You want more of the Lord, you've got to have less of the world. Period. What about on his Sabbath? How much of the world are you imbibing on the Sabbath day? This day that's supposed to be solely focused on the Lord Jesus Christ and what God has done for your soul in him. What are you doing on the Sabbath day? What are you doing on the Sabbath to replace that? To replace pleasure and joy in what the Lord has done for your soul where are you finding pleasure and joy instead? When you cease from doing the lesser things of the world, as is described here in Isaiah 58, 13, when you cease from doing these lesser things on God's holy day, God promises you that if you do that with the right heart and you do that in faith and you truly want to honor the holy day of the Lord, God promises you, you will find greater delight in me. I will be your delight. If you will separate yourselves from the world and come draw near to me, then I will give you the blessing of drawing near to you. Isn't that what you want? That's what I want. From the moment the Lord saved me, that's all I want. I just want to be, I just want to be with God. Don't you? You know, I think this explains why the Lord was so severe on Sabbath breakers under the Old Covenant. Why the death penalty for breaking the Sabbath? 
like Exodus 35.2. The Lord says, works to be done six days. The seventh day is a holy rest to the Lord. And whoever does any work on that day shall be put to death. Why? Why so stiff a penalty? Well, I think the answer is found in what you're rejecting when you don't observe the Sabbath. By refusing to cease from your normal labors in order to keep the Sabbath to the Lord, you are despising and rejecting and spurning the fellowship with God that He promises to give you on His Sabbath if you will observe it. On the... On the Sabbath day, the Lord holds Himself out to each one of us in a very special way. He says, here, on this day, I will be yours in a way that is unique from the rest of your week. You will have delight in Me in a way that is not normal on every other day of the week. If you will draw near to Me, I will draw near to you and you can have more of Me in your experience. And then we turn and we say, yeah, no thanks. Ah, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry. I just, I really, I really want to go to that baseball game. I'm sorry, Lord. I, you know, I know that sounds great and all. And I know that's probably the right thing for me to do. But I just really want to watch that movie. Like, do you understand... Do you understand what we're saying when we say that keeping the Sabbath day the way the Lord wants us to is a burden? All you're saying is that fellowship with God is burdensome. That's it. Now that may rub you the wrong way. Your your feathers may be brought up and furled up and you, you might be offended by what I'm saying. But the reality, my friend, is that if the Sabbath day according to God's commandment is not being observed by you because you think it's a burden then what you're saying is is that fellowship with God is a burden and is not worth fighting for. That you can find more pleasure in something else. See, the Sabbath day wasn't kept simply by God's people withdrawing from their work. It was only kept if on that day they sanctified in their hearts the true purpose for which it was instituted, which was drawing near to God. And so in in this light, there's only one way that keeping the Sabbath would be a burden, and that's if you don't love or delight in God. You love your stuff, you love your job, you love your money, you love entertainment, you love the world more than you do God. Second point, Sabbath keeping is about worshiping and communing with God. Number three, and we need to go quickly through this. Number three, third principle to understand so that we might grasp how it is that Jesus was not breaking the Sabbath when he healed and when he commanded this man to take up his bed and walk. Number three, third principle. Not only is the Sabbath a creation ordinance that covers all humanity, not only um, um, is the purpose of the Sabbath worship of God, but then thirdly, any work that was required for the worship of God 
was not a violation of the Sabbath. Any work that was required for the worship of God was not a violation of the Sabbath. So if you had to do something in order to worship God, if that was the goal and that was the aim, and the means of worshiping God was having to perform this task, then that task is not a violation of the Sabbath. Because it is a means unto an end, and the end is God. Does that make sense? Now clearly, under the Old Testament law, there were laws forbidding any kind of work on the Sabbath that was not necessary for worship. You can see that, for example, in Jeremiah 17, verses 21 through 22, where the Lord says, Take heed to yourselves, and bear no burden on the Sabbath day, nor bring it in by the gates of Jerusalem, nor carry a burden out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but hallow the Sabbath day, hallow the Sabbath day as I commanded your father. So clearly, the Lord's saying, You are not to do any work on the Sabbath that is not connected to my worship. It's not about increasing money, it's not about profitability, it's not about getting things done in a timely manner so you don't have to do it the rest of the week. That's, that's not what the Sabbath day is for. And that's why the man in Numbers 15 was put to death. Because gathering the sticks on the Sabbath day was not about worshiping the Lord, it was about doing something that he should have taken care of the day before. So that he would not be distracted by that task in the day of worshiping God. It's, that's the principle of Exodus 16.23, by the way, if you want to write that down. Uh, just the principle is that you need to get your work, all the distracting work, you need to get that done before the Sabbath so that on the Sabbath you're not distracted from worshiping God. You apply that as you, as you want. <laughs> all right. So, but any work that was necessary for worshiping God on the Sabbath was not a violation of the Sabbaths. For example, Leviticus chapter 24, verses 5 through 8. Every Sabbath day, the priest had to bake bread and replace 12 loaves of bread on the golden table in the holy place. And then verse 8 says, Every Sabbath he shall set it in order before the Lord continually as the gift from the children of God. Now, just, just realize that baking bread on the Sabbath was a violation of the Sabbath. Normally. For normal people. Uh, replacing bread on the Sabbath. That was work. And that would have been a violation of the Sabbath. In fact, even kindling a fire on the Sabbath day was a violation of the ceremonial command not to kindle a fire on the Sabbath. And yet here the Lord's telling the priest, you are to do these things because this is foundational and fundamental for worship. Or at least this is integral to your worship of me. The reason why it was permissible for them is because this was part of their worship of God and part of their covenant relationship with him. Therefore, it was acceptable. Numbers 28, verses 9 through 10. This also included sacrifices and grain offerings and drink offerings and burnt offerings. This, is, this was all in addition to the regular burnt offerings that were to be sacrificed daily. So according to that principle, on the Sabbath, the work of the priest was actually doubled than what was happening on the other days of the week. But it was not a breach of the Sabbath law because it was done in the service to and worship of the Lord. And, and Jesus argues that same thing in Matthew 12, verse 5, when he says, have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and yet are blameless? Why? Because their work is a part of the prescribed worship that God instituted in the old covenant. Now, you guys with me? If it was permissible on the Sabbath to do work for the purpose of worshiping God, 
then I would argue that Jesus' command for this man to take up his mat and walk in John 5, 8 was not a violation of the Sabbath. <clears throat> Even though this man was carrying his mat, he was carrying a burden. He was doing so as an act of worship to God who had just healed him. That was Christ's intention anyway. As we've already seen, Christ's intention was for this man not only to be healed, but then to put the full glory of that healing on display for everyone to see so that they might worship the God who had healed him. So carrying this mat for this man was not about working for him. He wasn't carrying this mat so that he could go make a profit in the market. He wasn't carrying this mat as part of his business or, 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 or despising fellowship with the Lord. It was actually a means of expressing his fellowship with the Lord. He hadn't been able to do that for 38 years. And here God has healed him. What else is he to do but take it up as a badge and a sign of what God had done in his life and put it on display for everyone to rejoice in? Carrying his mat was not breaching the Sabbath law. It was a demonstration of his freedom and of the liberation from his own bondage that Christ had worked for him. Therefore, it was worship. And therefore, it was not a work that was breaching the Sabbath because it was an act of worship. At least it was intended to be by Christ. So if the work for the old covenant Sabbath form to be upheld was acceptable for the sake of worship. How then can this demonstration of the blessings of the new covenant, how can that not be acceptable? If it was acceptable to work on the Sabbath under the old covenant for the sake of worship, how could this demonstration of the new covenant blessings that Jesus brings, the healing of this man, how could that demonstration be unacceptable on the Sabbath? Well, I believe it's only unacceptable if your Sabbath worship is not really about God. If it's about something else, which is the case for these Jewish leaders. And we're going to look at that more fully next week. Right. Let's pray together. Father, we, we do thank you for your, for your word. And I... I know how easy it is for your people not to be served well in the proclamation of your word. God, I pray that you would overlook, pass over, overcome any negative effects that may have been introduced through the sermon. And God, that you would richly feed your people with your truth. Lord, fill them with a sense of awe and wonder as they contemplate the God who beckons them to come away to come away from the world and to be with him. God, give them great joy as they seek to follow through on your command for us to seek you in that way. Lord, let your spirit fill us with joy and with a sense of sweet communion with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I, uh, I do want to clarify something while people are coming up. Um, I don't mean to bind anyone's conscience 
with my own illustrations that were being used in the sermon today. Um, Ultimately, how the Lord's Day is to be honored by you is something that you have to work out with Christ on your own. Now, I'm happy to help lead and guide. The elders are happy. The deacons would be happy to, to speak with you on that. Anyone in this church who has a mature mind to them and versed in the scriptures would be able to help you with that. But, but I don't want you to come away thinking that because I used an illustration of watching a movie on the Lord's Day, that that means you're in sin if you do that. Okay? <laughs> I don't want that to bind your conscience. I'm just using it as an illustration that these are the kinds of things we need to wrestle with. And um, ultimately, it's, up, it's between you and the Lord. Now, honoring the Lord's Day, I, I hope you recognize this, honoring the Lord's Day every Sunday, week by week throughout your life, that is a type and a shadow of a greater reality that's coming for you one day. Uh, when we gather together with the people of Christ to worship our risen Savior, to hold fast to him in faith. Oh, sweetie. To hold fast to our Savior in faith, uh, together as a body to encourage each other in the worship of his name. All of that is prefiguring or, or just, it's, it's a shadow, a foreshadowing of the greater fullness of fellowship that you and I are going to enjoy in the presence of our Savior one day. Now, for a benediction, <clears throat> May the Lord bless you, and may he keep you. May he make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he lift up his countenance upon you and give you his restful peace through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 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 You're dismissed.